live from Liverpool, the Dark Paranormal, Season 8. Hi everyone and welcome back to the Dark Paranormal, Season 8. It feels like an eternity since I've got to sit in front of this microphone and record an episode of The Dark Paranormal, although it's only been a few weeks. It feels so nice to hear that piano once again in my headphones and know that over the next 10 episodes, I'm going to share with you some of the most terrifying true paranormal experiences that we've ever covered on The Dark Paranormal. This season is different from any other season we've done before, as we will be mixing your true paranormal experiences along with some more well-known paranormal cases. And that's how the format of the Dark Paranormal is going to be moving forward. So if you do have a true paranormal experience that may fit into one of our future seasons, email us, thedarkparanormal at hotmail.com. If you're new to the show, as it's the start of a new season, there's no better time for me to give a very brief synopsis about what the show aims to do. Well, quite simply, the show aims to remind each and every one of us about what it's like to be scared of the unknown, to reinstill or to remind us of that fear we all had as children when you'd walk into a dark room and fumble for a light switch. Or when you'd walk upstairs after turning all the lights off and feel like some presence is behind you and proceed to run to the safety of your bedroom. We all have this inherent fear of the unknown and we try and battle it as adults. We try and rationalise everything that happens that could be something supernatural or paranormal. That sensation is an evolutionary hangover of when we would have to fear the dark, when we would have to fear what lived out there in the shadows. But I think there's a reason why it still exists within all of us. Because with our technological advances and the fact we live in high-rises and apartments and houses, as opposed to caves and going hunting for our food, there is still reason to be afraid of the dark. And with this show, we want to reach out and grab you by the shoulders and give you a shake and remind you that sometimes that noise isn't the central heating. It's not the house settling. And maybe, just maybe, you are not alone. Today's true paranormal experience is one of the best that I think we've received thus far on the show and one hell of a way to launch Season 8. But before we get there, I need to thank everyone who's joined our Patreon team in the downtime between seasons. When you sign up to Patreon, not only do you receive these episodes ad-free and before anyone else, you also receive exclusive access to our Patreon-only podcast, Dark Bites, a show which goes out each and every week, even on the downtime between seasons. We've built a wonderful community of like-minded paranormal enthusiasts over on Patreon, and we'd love to extend an invitation just for you. Simply head over to patreon.com forward slash thedarkparanormal, just like these wonderful new team members have. 
Carol Hearn, Monica Rodriguez, Holly Lorraine, Marie, Evil Days, Jen Trembath, Selena Dean, Joel Yon, Sarah Sargent, Jordan Panabianco, Daniel Roderwald, Louise Sparkles, Megan, Rising Legend 956, Abby H, Miranda P, Tracy Lane, Caitlin, Ari Atwood, Shanna Mercado, Jenna Patterson, Erin Mahoney, Hilary Disashore, Mason Gotts, Brianna Beaton, Patrick Walsh, Amanda, Olivia Fisher, Ashley Rose Martin, Tamalyn Tinker, Kate Carvalho, Carmen Ortega, William O'Connell, Paddy Barco, Flamson54, Caroline Lynch, Adam Hutchinson, Ren Murphy and Pam. Thank you so much guys for your support. I sincerely hope you enjoy all of the early releases and of course, all of the Patreon-only episodes of Dark Bites. If you'd like to join our team, simply head over to patreon.com forward slash the dark paranormal. And now, without further ado, it feels so good to once again say the following words. Please, lower the lights. Make yourself comfortable, and of course, leave your disbelief at the door, as we hear the first true paranormal experience of Season 8, A Coven of Crows. I've always been told that when you recollect an event or a story, it must have a clear start, middle and end. But this story doesn't. The following recollections of the events in my childhood are lacking any ending. Its lack of conclusion may well frustrate the listener, but that's nothing to the torment that this lack of closure has caused me throughout my whole life. I grew up in the farming country of Mid Wales in the late 1950s, where we rented a small cottage where the four of us lived. My mother, Paul, my father, Jacob, myself and my younger brother, Gareth. He had a debilitating polio, which required him to wear support calipers on both legs. Those hilly pastures were difficult for Gareth, and even a trip to the local well would leave him physically exhausted. My father rented a small holding on which he and my mother raised sheep and managed ten or so beehives, at the far end was a small oak woodland, from which we had a regular supply of pheasant, wood pigeon or fish from the stream. You could easily be fooled into imagining that this was an idyllic place in which to grow up. It wasn't. It was a lonely place, with our nearest neighbours being well over five miles away. Even our attendance at school was sporadic, as we often were needed to help out on the farm. The farm's remoteness also left us vulnerable to my father's temper. He was quick to anger and would think nothing of beating my mother and us two boys. Even now I recoil as I remember one such incident as we cleared cobwebs from above the window frame. My father had a locked wooden chest, which he kept beneath the window, and we stood on that to reach the top corners. When he caught us doing this, both of us were beaten within an inch of our lives. We never went near that chest again, and we were utterly terrified in the presence of this brute of a man. Thinking back, it's also difficult to portray how quiet the farm could be. As an adult, I've spent a lot of time in country surroundings, and, yes, they are quiet places by default. But my memories of that place have this 
well, deadening, an almost unholy silence. My recollection is that my father barely spoke. Certainly I can never recall hearing a conversation between my parents. The world in which we lived was mainly silent, grey, joyless. Looking back, it makes me profoundly sad to remember Gareth's delight as the autumn storms would lash against our bedroom windows. He was always mesmerised by the sheer force. He'd squeal with delight hearing the wind suddenly whip up or change direction. Another thing that Gareth enjoyed was watching the crows, high in the treetops as they began to build their nests in late February. He would often sit for hours in the same spot at the top of the banking, sometimes in furious weather, as he listened to the rooks squabbling over sticks for their nests. He took delight at watching the birds carefully selecting sticks from a pile that he'd collected for them. It was on one such day that Gareth became gravely ill. He'd been sitting in the same spot for several hours, and when he did not return for his food, my mother found him with a fever, shaking, curled in a ball at the top of the hill. She carried him to bed where, for almost a full day, he twisted in delirious spasms which engulfed his whole body. It was horrific to watch, and that night I spent hours kneeling beside my bed, deep in desperate prayer for my brother to recover. The next morning I was sent to fetch the doctor. It seems inconceivable now that I ran all the way to that next village. A small village named Borth was at least ten miles away, though I don't recall breaking my stride to get there. On arrival at the village, I remember panicking, thinking, what if he didn't come? Or worse still, what if I couldn't find him? Thankfully, neither was the case. Dr. Sugwell was working in his front garden. Panting for breath, I garbled the happenings back at the farm. He immediately stopped what he was doing and readied his car to drive us back. In my whole life, I've never known a journey take so long. It seemed to take an age travelling with those twisting country roads. We finally pulled into our courtyard. But instantly, I knew something was wrong. All the windows and doors of the house were wide open. Every last one. I knew what this meant. Even the doctor sighed as the car stopped. We were too late. This was the done thing. You opened every window and door to the outside to allow the passage of a soul from the home. My poor, beautiful brother Gareth had passed away. Such was the gut-wrenching horror of Gareth's passing that my memories from that day are simultaneously as clear as if they happened yesterday, yet at the same time rather disjointed, like thoughts inside a dream. Beside our farmhouse, a muddy path led to a cold store, where lambs would be killed and left to hang. 
It was here that Gareth's body was placed onto the stone slab in the middle of the room. As with everything my father did, there was no time for sentiment. And as we waited for the arrival of the undertakers from Aberystwyth, Gareth's body was left overnight on the slab, as if he were an animal waiting to be butchered. That image is burnt in my mind, him laying there in the freezing cold, a thin cotton sheet pulled up to his shoulders, his eyes open and glassy, staring upwards at an old swallow's nest stuck in the rafters. That evening, as we left Gareth and closed the door to the cold room, I noticed that the yew trees on either side of the entrance to the farm had been threaded with a thin red twine, almost giving the effect of a sparsely decorated Christmas tree. It didn't enter my thoughts to question the reason for such a strange action. I reasoned that maybe this was a sign for the undertakers. That night, heavy sheet rain slammed against our bedroom window. I couldn't sleep, thinking of Gareth alone in the meat store. At first light, I crept downstairs and silently made my way across the yard to see my brother. But as I reached the path, I immediately realised that the scene I had left just the night before had now subtly changed. Firstly, the red twine surrounding the yew trees had disappeared. But, more alarmingly, the path leading to the door where my brother's body lay was now covered in literally hundreds of muddy footprints. It was as if a huge congregation had visited the building in the dead of night and their wet footprints were pressed into every inch of mud on the path. I could not fathom where these people had come from, or disappeared too. I then realised that the store door had been left slightly open. I'd been with my father that previous evening and was certain that on our departure, the door was firmly closed. A wave of terrified nausea swept through my body, and I bolted towards the store in belief that something dreadful had happened to my brother's body. As I swung the door open, I almost collapsed in relief. As I saw Gareth's body lying in the same position we'd left him the previous evening. But as I slowly walked towards his body, I noticed that the position of Gareth's head had been moved slightly back. And to my utter confusion, I realised that someone had placed penny coins on his eyes. I stared at them a while and surmised maybe it was done to keep his eyes shut. Such was the relationship with my parents that my confusion regarding the mysterious visitors was left unspoken and the next few days passed in a haze of all-consuming grief. On the day of the funeral... Dr. Sugwell kindly offered to drive us to the small country churchyard where Gareth would be laid to rest. Although only a quarter of a mile away and on the far side of our wood, the elderly doctor was insistent that he would drive us there. And so it happened that we now silently sat in the doctor's car, 
waiting for the funeral carriage to pass our gate on the way to the graveyard. On any other day, the lack of pleasantries and conversation may well have been awkward. But on this day, the silence seemed appropriate. When we finally came to leave the farm, something made me turn and look back up to the hill where Gareth's feeble body was found. There, beneath the elm trees that contained the rook's nests, my attention was suddenly diverted by a spectacle of nature which was so bewitching that it is almost impossible to describe. From high in the trees, the air was blackened by a torrent of birds streaming towards the ground down to the place where Gareth had been found. It was as if the birds were greeting some unseen apparition. On the branches above, the other birds twisted their heads in loud consternation at something invisible beneath their tree. Their brief plummeting flights seemed to focus at the same point before the birds abruptly recoiled and returned to the safety of the branches high above. Even when we arrived at the graveyard some ten minutes later, I could still hear the sound of the clamour of birds from our distant farm. Even the chaplain was conscious of the birds' cries, and at one point halted the graveside eulogy in the hope the cacophony would subside. However, the sound continued. But as the small coffin was lowered into the earth, something happened that will remain with me to my dying day. At the exact second that Gareth's body was lowered to rest, the clamour of the crows abruptly stopped, and within an instant, the hillside fell silent. Let's have a quick break to talk to you about Policy Genius. Now, we all like to put off life insurance talk because it reminds us of our mortality. But life insurance isn't about death, it's about life. It's about ensuring the lives of those you love remain secure and comfortable. And I'm sure many of you will think, well, I'm covered through work or I'm covered through my bank account. But believe me, you want to check those finer details because you may be surprised what you're actually covered for. And this is exactly where Policy Genius come into their own. Yes, we could talk about how Policy Genius is America's leading online insurance marketplace or how their award-winning agents will walk you step by step through the entire process. But the best thing about Policy Genius for me is they don't have a dog in the fight. They're not going to strong arm you towards one company or another. They've no incentive to do so. Their only incentive is to listen to your needs, scour America's top companies and find you the best price. For example, with Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that begin at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options even offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. There's a reason why Policy Genius has thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot, and you'll find out what it is when you tick life insurance off your to-do list with Policy Genius. So head over to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. That's policygenius.com. Farmers are a superstitious breed of people, at least from my experience, specifically with birds. The death of a robin will bring a fire. The sight of a kingfisher means fine weather is coming. The list goes on. My own mother would even whisper news to the bees as she tended to their summer hives. One widely held belief, still found today, is that a colony of crows or rooks brings prosperity to a farm. 
For Welsh farmers at the time, this old folklore was almost biblically embraced, and farmers would plant oak and ash trees in the hope of encouraging a rookery of crows. After Gareth's death, my father walked up the hill and killed all the rooks. He waited for the chicks to appear in May, and then shot his gun through the middle of each nest, killing the fledglings. In a clearing in the wood he set a large cage trap, and on some days he would ensnare nine or ten crows. Reaching into the metal cage, and delicately grabbing each bird, blowing on their face to calm them down, before snapping their slender necks. Their limp bodies he then left dangling from the trees, a grim warning for the remaining birds that this was an unsafe wood for them to stay. It was around a year after Gareth's death that strange things began to take place in that wood. Each day I walked through the wood as a shortcut to the cemetery where Gareth lay. For hours at a time, I would sit in silence beside Gareth's unmarked grave. There was no headstone. We just couldn't afford it. Instead, I'd planted a small acorn beside the grave which I watered from an old milk bottle. Like the other graves in the yard, the soil on Gareth's grave had now sunk into a shallow dip which had become grassed over. On this particular day, I noticed that two daffodils had sprouted from the grass, and on one, the head was missing. I didn't give this a second thought as I returned back through the woods. It was now dusk and the spring wind was high in the trees. As I walked through the woodland clearing, my attention was drawn to the crows that my father had strung up in the trees. In the wind, their lifeless corpses swung in rhythm to the creak of the branches. As I got a little closer, I suddenly realised that something was different about one bird. I stopped in my tracks as I realised what it was. A yellow daffodil had grotesquely been placed in the bird's beak. I turned round to check the other dangling birds strung up around the glade. Each had been mutilated, or embellished in unique ways. One had its wings cut off, another had its claws bound with pondweed. But what particularly terrified me is that one of the crows had been placed inside a shape crafted from branches. To my instant horror, I recognised this sinister shape. It was a witch's pentangle. In absolute terror, I ran the rest of the way home. That night, I could not get the images out of my mind. Again and again, my mind returned to the image of the daffodils on Gareth's grave. I was confused and frightened. When I went to bed that night, I was convinced that some evil force lurked in the wood around us but even more terrifying was the thought that Gareth lay alone out there. Every night I prayed, but on that night, such was my terror, I spoke my prayers out loud. God, please don't let any harm come to any of us. Please keep Gareth safe. 
Let him rest in peace, please, God. I must have fallen asleep where I prayed, because sometime in the dead of night, I awoke to find myself lying on the cold floor. There was no light in the room, as the candle had burnt out. Disorientated, I struggled to lift myself from the bare floorboards, but as I did, I suddenly heard a faint knocking from somewhere in the room. Who is it? I asked, presuming it to be someone tapping on the door. I froze, awaiting a response, but none came. For a few moments I stood in silence, my shallow breathing the only sound in the room. I suddenly realised that something was tapping on the bedroom window. Slowly, I walked towards the window, and with a shaking hand, I hesitantly lifted the curtain. There, sitting on the stone ledge, a young wood owl sat peering down into the courtyard. For several moments I was transfixed by the owl, as it slowly swivelled its head searching for mice. I was literally inches away from the owl, yet it seemed unconcerned as I watched it for several minutes. Then, in agitation, the bird began to screech loudly and move its head back and forth as it abruptly fixed its gaze on the entrance to the wood. It was as if it was perturbed by some hidden sight deep within the trees. Children can often be prone to irrational thoughts, and these fretful imaginings can make us do all kinds of strange things. In that moment, I was consumed by the awful thought that Gareth was in danger. It's now difficult to imagine, but almost before I realised what I was doing, I was up, dressed and walking towards the woodland entrance with nothing more than a stick to protect me. On entering the wood, I was immediately conscious of the loud crunch of leaves beneath my feet. I knew these woods well, so I moved off the path to walk along the thick roots of the trees that ran parallel to the path. I was fearful of the darkness, and knew that I must once again pass the hanging crows. But my need to see Gareth and check his grave was so consuming that it almost overpowered my fears. As I picked my way across the thick tangle of roots, I looked up to a gap in the trees above. A thin sliver of light in the sky indicated that it would soon be dawn. I walked on now, approaching the glade which was about 30 yards ahead. I don't know what made me suddenly stop, but something in the distant glade momentarily caught my eye. It was as if a brief light had momentarily sparked and then had been instantly extinguished. I slumped down and hid myself behind the writhing roots of a tall oak tree. I was now sure of it. Something was moving up ahead. I was suddenly conscious of my nervous breathing and hunkered more tightly into the roots. Between the distant silhouettes of the trees the thin dawn light could just about be distinguished between the small breaks in the wood. Every few seconds, the light was blocked and then reappeared again, giving the impression of swift movement across the glade. I peered into that glade, wondering what may be moving so rapidly. My first thought was it must be a herd of deer passing through the wood. But as my eyes became more accustomed to the darkness... 
I suddenly realised what it actually was. As the weak light of the morning faintly illuminated the glade, I could now see the blurred shapes of people, perhaps a dozen or so, slowly moving in a circle. In the centre, a man or woman, I'm unsure which, was wearing what seemed to be a white hood, and they held their arms skyward, as if in worship of something. At that moment, in unison, the group began to chant something indistinguishable. The sound was reminiscent of a church congregation, devoutly offering their Christian responses. But this was no Christian meeting. I instantly knew this could only be one thing, some sort of occult ceremony. And with pure terror coursing through my veins, I instinctively turned and sprinted from the wood. Within minutes I was standing back at our farmyard. The sun was rising, and whatever birds were left alive in the trees were beginning to stir. After almost 70 years, I still struggle to make sense of that evening. Who was in the woodland glade that night? Were these the same people, perhaps even a witch's coven, that had visited my brother, leaving their footprints in the mud? Looking back, very little of these events makes sense. There is no closure to the traumatic events surrounding that time of my life. My mother and father died within weeks of each other in 2010. It often seems to happen that way in these old Welsh villages. Before travelling north to clear the farm of their meagre belongings, I finally got round to doing something I'd wanted to do since way back then. I commissioned a local stonemason to erect a headstone for my brother's grave. It was strange returning to the farm. It somehow looked much smaller than I remembered, and the wood is now surrounded by an impenetrable thicket of brambles, which prohibits any entry into that dark place. My two sons accompanied me to clear the house. I could see they were actually shocked to finally see the desolate home in which I lived. It didn't take long to empty the contents into our van. We were almost finished when my oldest son, Tom, called me into the downstairs living room. On the windowsill, he'd placed a wooden chest. I instantly knew it was the same chest that, to our peril, my brother and I had stood on as children. Look inside, Dad, he said. Even as a grown man, it felt wrong to even touch the box. I carefully lifted the lid and then recoiled with an almost instant revulsion. Neatly folded in the chest was a starch white linen gown and a beautifully embroidered white hood. The very same costume that I'd seen in the wood on that fateful night. Before returning to Brighton, I took my sons to visit Gareth's grave. As I emotionally opened the graveyard's small iron gate, I was immediately struck by how well maintained the graves were. Each had been freshly mown, and neat stone pathways crisscrossed the yard. I saw Gareth's grave, slightly back from the others, with its newly sculpted marble headstone. A thick mound of daffodils sprang from the ground, and there, 
observing the whole scene was Gareth's oak tree. I planted this, I casually said to my sons. For a moment, the three of us stared in silence at the tree. At that moment, a rook briefly took rest in one of the branches. For several moments, it scanned the graveyard before shaking its feathers and disappearing off over the wood. I know my experience doesn't have an ending as such, and it probably leaves more questions than answers. However, I can only tell you what I experienced. I've spent some time making sure the wording of this story is both accurate and respectful of both your listeners' time and my brother Gareth's memory. Wow, what an amazing story to ease us in to season 8 of The Dark Paranormal. I do love a good occult story such as that. There are certain small villages, be it in Wales or in the Lake District, when myself and my partner go on short breaks, that when we drive through, they seem to have this feeling that would suit this experience down to the ground. And it's not in every quaint rural village that you go through you get that feeling. But when you do, you know it. So thank you so much to the listener who provided today's premiere episode of The Dark Paranormal Season 8. Next week, we return with a poltergeist story the likes of which I've never heard before. But until then, of course, I'll be speaking to our Patreons on Sunday for another episode of Dark Bites. And for everyone, I will speak to you next Friday for episode two of The Dark Paranormal. So until then, remember, when you're discussing the paranormal, always try and leave some of your disbelief at the door. And I'll speak to you next time here on The Dark Paranormal. <laughs>